0: Well, hey, y'all, welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I am Darren, I'm your host, and today I've got another great guest, Mr. Bill Carew. He is the owner and inventor of the KarubiQ C60 wood-fired smoker. I'll be right back. We'll talk to Bill about how he created the most unique wood-fired smoker on the market.
1: Smoking, grilling, getting hot and hotter, sous vide and chilling from
0: Fire and water. Hey all, I want to introduce you to a company I just started working with, Fresh Jack's Organic Spices out of Jacksonville, Florida. They're a small family-run company that's fast growing. I've tried a bunch of their different seasoning blends and spices, and I can tell you they are all fresh all organic. None of them contain artificial flavors or sweeteners. None of them have anti-caking agents or preservatives. They all taste like they were just made for you yesterday. Check them out, guys. They're on Amazon in the link below. They have different sample packs, different blends. Like I said, they also have the individual seasonings and spices as well. Fresh Jack's organic spices. Check them out, guys. I love them welcome back to the fire and water cooking podcast i am darren i am your host of course and today i've got another great guest one that i hope you guys will enjoy i have mr bill carew he is the owner and inventor of the Caru cbq c60 inverted flame barbecue pit i want to say it like that because i want people to understand this is just not a regular smoker or grill you can go out by at home depot so welcome bill where are you from Hi. what do you do who are you
1: Uh, So I'm from Southlake, Texas. I grew up in Houston and uh, went off and drove submarines in the Navy for five years and came back to Texas and worked in the semiconductor industry for five years and then worked in uh, consulting for another five years and then worked uh, in the building products industry for going on 20 years now.
0: So this is uh, the the KBQ is kind of your side side gig or is this something that...
1: uh... The KBQ is a hobby gone bad. Uh, it, it, uh, never, I didn't try to start a business. It just sort of happened. Uh, I tried to solve a problem and, uh, met with some success in solving that problem. And that sort of became a business. So yeah, it's, um, uh, keeps me out of bars. Yeah.
0: So how did you get involved in, uh, you you did a little bit of rundown. You were in the the Navy running submarines and how did you get involved in barbecue and how did you make it to where? you wanted to, to build a smoker.
1: Right. So um, there's really one guy to blame for all of this. And his name is Steve Sweeney. He's an old buddy of mine. Go goes way back to high school and college roommates and all that stuff. And uh, I want to say in 1997 or 1998, Steve had the idea that uh, we should do a barbecue tour. And I said, well, that sounds great. I'm uh, oh, in what, what's a barbecue tour. And, um, and now there's lots of folks doing it. He was sort of on the leading edge of that whole thing. And uh, uh, we, we went, he said, we're going to go eat barbecue a few times and write down what we think about it. Oh, okay. So within five years, that was, that was eight guys crammed in a 15-passenger van for three days straight eating barbecue six or seven times a day um, every August. Uh, And we did that until uh, everyone's kids started getting old enough to wear, you know, sports and all that kind of crowded out. But we've collectively probably been to maybe 300, 400 barbecue joints around the U.S. Um, And uh, Steve has an exhaustive cataloging of that on bbqtours.org. And um, so that, that was a few years or more than a few, but... Uh, a lot, so that's of, pretty
0: much like a yeah. pub crawl, but on steroids yes. with barbecue. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know,
1: it's not long before you realize the rookies, the rookie mistake is being really hungry on day one and you eat until you're sort of satisfied the first joint and you're crying like a baby by the time, uh, the whole thing is <laughs> over. Um, so, but I'm, I'm the, uh, I'm the engineer nerd. So my undergraduate degree was in engineering and I've been in, uh, technology in one way or another. Uh, for, for a long time. And uh, we would always make a point to go talk to the pit boss and to go look at the pit. And, uh, and so that just sort of piqued my interest and uh, seeing barbecue made on a lot of different kinds of pits and seeing results that somewhat, but not perfectly seemed to correlate with um, how, how they were being managed and what kind of pit it was and, and trying to uh, sort of turn something that is commonly thought of as an art into a science uh, that really got me going. And I said, you know, I I gotta be able to figure this out. It's cooking meat with fire has been around for a very long time, but there's a surprising amount of unknowns associated with it. And uh, I was determined that I was going to solve that and that it wouldn't take very long. And I'll just bear down on this problem. And uh, it turned out to take a whole lot longer than that about, um, about four years before I kind of, uh, eventually got to the core technology that's embodied in the KBQ pits now.
0: Yeah. I looked on your website and you kind of, you have a little chronological order of when right. you started and where you finally hit the uh, current product that you have now. And it, it yeah. like you said, you kind of said, well, I thought it was going to take a couple months, but it really ended up taking like really eight years to what you have now, what you put out there now uh, from yeah. the development and, and I, stage.
1: I can't tell you it. I mean, the, in retrospect the funniest thing about it and i can't say whether it's uh sort of hubris or determination um, is that even after you know the 11th try where i'd invested a huge amount of time and effort uh in in something that was certain was gonna finally solve this problem uh, only to have it be a complete disaster Um uh, <laughs> and and uh, you know, walk away from it for a couple of months and, and, uh, and, and then come back and for the 12th try, like, oh yeah, this is going to, this is going to do it. I've got it figured out now. And it's just this, you know, that if I had paid attention to the track record, I never would have got the end of it. Uh, for some reason, I always thought the next one was going to solve the problem. So yeah. eventually, it did.
0: Now, did you ever compete in barbecue competitions or was it just strictly you went around and tried a bunch of, you know, being a connoisseur of barbecue instead of a uh, chef of barbecue going out there and yeah, perfecting the, it? The latter. I mean, I am
1: I can get by. I'm a reasonably good barbecue cook, uh, but I'm really the knuckle dragging of an engineer, uh, <laughs> not, the, uh, not the cook. And the, the, the competitive aspect of it was never, it always seemed a little subjective to me. Um, to, to sort of scratch my, my engineering itch, to try to be as objective as possible about things. So I've always been much more interested in, um, the combustion process in the oven and, and then how to fabricate it economically and all that good stuff.
0: Well, one of the things, you know, I've had plenty of, um, famous barbecue cooks on my podcast. And one of the things they always say is, you know, eating barbecue and competition barbecue are two different things. Yeah. They would never feed their family stuff that they make, you know, for the judges at a competition, just because, you know, with the competition you're, you're going for that one bite to impress the judge because they're sitting there, they're going over, you know, hundreds of boxes of the same type of meat and you want them to, you know, you, you put all kinds of stuff in there just to get them to, pick yours out of everybody else's. So it's not something you're going to sit down and eat a whole rack of ribs that are made like that because there's just too much gunk and junk thrown in there.
1: Yeah. I mean, the first time I saw a guy whip out the squeeze parquet, uh, uh, Johnny Triggs ribs, this is not, this is not, this is not my thing. I'm probably a little more of a purist or a snob or whatever you might say.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, back when, uh, you know, barbecue pit masters was, was uh, really hot out there. I think people thought that's what real barbecue was, but once you cook it once or twice, or you even ask a pit master, they'll tell you, that's not something you want to eat at home. It's right. that's, that's something that you're, you're just strictly trying to do something different than everybody else to get that one, you know, pop that yeah. uh, they're going to re- remember you. But, um, yeah, I've had Malcolm Reed on Steven Reichlin, you know, they're just, they all say the same thing. It's, it's totally different. Yeah. Don't, don't think you're going to take Johnny's triggs ribs and f- feed them to your family. And they're going to think they're great. Cause they'll probably take two or three bites and go, I can't eat anymore of this stuff. Right. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, so the, the practicality of it is is not the best. So so yeah, you I've kind of just been, focus. I've always been
1: attracted to the idea of um, bringing it to the everyman, right? right? That's that's the whole idea is uh, not not some you know once a year or, or whatever rarity kind of thing, but um, there are elements of of it that are very difficult, and uh, um, so I've always been not, not attracted to sort of, uh, you know, making a barbecue pit for someone who's already an expert. Uh, if you're already an expert, you can make awesome barbecue with a, you know, 55 gallon drum. Uh, it's, it's how do you, how how do you help the other 98% of the population? That's not an expert, uh, but has may have some aspiration,
0: right? Exactly. Yeah. That's, you know, like, you can't go and tell Aaron Franklin how to cook a brisket because right. it's taken him many years of knowing his pits, knowing exactly how to start the fire, how much wood yeah. to burn, you know, how much draft he needs, when to wrap it, all that. That's where the right. art part comes into, but not everybody wants to do that. Not everybody wants to take that time and yep. try to, you know, take the you know effort that it really takes to learn, you know, how to do that, uh, Exactly. He has to, because he, he does it on a consistent daily basis. So now it's second nature to him, but not everybody wants to take the time to do that. Yep. So um, let's, let's talk a little bit about when you started getting this idea of, I want to build a better pit, you know, what were you kind of looking at out there and, and trying to compare what you wanted to do? Was it more about what the final product you wanted to get? Was it more of how, how I can get, the, cause the way yours work is it's an inverted flame. And we're going to get into that a little bit deeper yeah. in a minute, but everybody wants to hit that blue smoke. I mean, that's the big thing. And right. anybody will tell you that's in barbecue. You don't want dirty smoke. You want that thin blue smoke. That's the perfect stuff. That means your fire is at the perfect uh, temperature. That means you're getting all those volatiles are gone and you're just getting the nice clean right. wood wood smoke. So when you started looking at building a smoker, what what was your main uh, focus on and how you wanted to develop this and what your, what was your end uh, game that you wanted to do?
1: Yeah. So um, I didn't have the, I didn't have the end. In, so I've had a lot of great barbecue and a lot of revolting barbecue uh, <laughs> on account of going on all these barbecue tours. So I, I had a very uh, well, I had a reasonably well-informed idea of what good barbecue was and what bad barbecue was. Um, and, and I wanted to make good barbecue uh, and I started off uh, on on completely the wrong track uh, on a number of occasions. But uh, the idea was, uh, how do I make something simple that controls temperature very precisely? And uh, uh, I think the first version I made, the, the closest proximity to it was like an oiler, right? So it was a refractory line, firebox. Um and it it uh, had a temperature controller that that was controlling combustion air to the firebox, so very much like a uh, an oiler uh, style commercial uh, barbecue pit. And uh, and I I figured out pretty quickly that I could control temperature. Like temperature control is not the issue, right? That's the thing that I focused on. That most people focus on is well, is it two twenty three or two twenty five, which is just. In retrospect, just kind of crazy, right? Doesn't really right. <laughs> matter. It doesn't have to be that precise. as this is not Sous vide where right. we're sort of flirting with some food safety margin. Uh we're cooking the snot out of everything. And uh uh and so it doesn't matter if it's 225 or 230 or 250, yeah. whatever. Well, when you're that's when sure you're
0: cooking happens. with air, it's really hard to nail that down anyway. You yeah. know, you can't yeah. you can't do that in any kind of smoker, and that's the other thing that blows my mind all the people right. get new into it even with the pellet grills oh I, I i look at the the dome temperature and then i look at the one on the grate and it's d- two different well yeah they are different because they're different temperatures and different parts of yeah, your grill no matter what you do
1: <laughs> they're massively i mean we could talk about temperature for for 30 minutes probably um right. the and, and i'd love to loop back to that but uh the 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 first version, I was like, "Well, how do I load this up with wood and then uh, flip a switch and let it go?" And it, you know, took basically four years for me to to learn a couple basic things about it. Uh, the first is that uh, wood doesn't work that way. Um, wood as a fuel uh, is is well, wood is not a fuel; it's a fuel source, and it behaves very differently from uh, the the fuels that wood produces. Um, so, when you take a piece of wood and heat it up, um, well, first thing happens is the water that's in the wood uh, is substantially off gas, uh, but then the wood decomposes into two fuels that can actually burn. One's a solid fuel, we call that charcoal, and that, that burns in a surface reaction to form carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide. And the other is smoke, right? That's the gaseous fuel. So, if you take a a log and heat it up after it's dry, a bunch of smoke will come out of it. Uh, and that smoke's got about half the caloric value of, of a log, varies by species, but ballpark, about half the energy uh, is in the, the gaseous uh, emissions or the smoke that comes out of that log. And the remainder is in this, the carbon skeleton that, uh, that remains. So, uh, and those two fuels are, one of them is very benign, charcoal or carbon, uh, uh, super benign fuel. That's why it's so easy to cook with a charcoal fire cooker. You can overload it with fuel and uh, just control the amount of oxygen you give to it and control the combustion rate and the power and the temperature very easily um, with carbon fuel. The downside of it is carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide are colorless, odorless, and most importantly, flavorless. So mm-hmm. uh, because there's no hydrogen left, there's no hydrocarbons. It's just carbon. Um and all the aromatics are have hydrogen in them. So uh the the smoke is the harder part, right? The gaseous fuel and that stuff is uh uh responsible for 100% of the flavor profile that you get with barbecue, which is a reason why you go to all the trouble in the first place. Um and and it's a very difficult to control um fuel. Uh first off, it's it, you either going to burn it as a flame or you're not and if you don't burn it it's liable to condense on the surface of anything cold like a brisket and so if you've ever had a barbecue that was black and bitter tasting almost had a hint of turpentine which is also made from a wood distillate um, that's the result of very poor combustion of
0: uh, of wood smoke. Yeah,
1: yeah um, that's the
0: smoldering effect and, and people right. and here's all, I, one of the things that I love amazingribs.com because Meathead gets into the scientific part of yeah. cooking and barbecue instead of the traditional or the, you know, uh, like he says, the mythology of it, where right. people, you know, and this comes up in the Facebook groups all the time, you know, how long should I soak my wood chips before right. I put them, you know, and, and things like that, where, or, you know, I want, to have as much smoke as possible. And it's like, you really don't. And A, if you soak your wood chips, most of it's steam coming out. And then then you got the nasty smoke because you're you gotta have actual flame. You gotta actually right. you have to burn to actually have the good smoke that you want. And people right. sometimes it's hard for them to wrap their heads around that and understand, like you said, that yeah. you don't want that nasty white smoke because you're gonna get these bitter flavors. But I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: Well so uh, y- yeah i mean what i i hope what i'm hoping i can do is sort of uh get to the basic level it's taken me forever to sort of sort this all out but um that wood smoke right which is boiled out of a log is being heated and which when it's all been boiled out of the log the log is now a piece of charcoal right lump charcoal that's lump charcoal is what's left when you take a piece of wood and you heat it up without air and drive all the volatiles out of it. And you're left with that carbon skeleton. That's what we call lump charcoal. So that, that smoke which has all the aromatics and can be responsible for flavors ranging from uh, non-existent to spectacular to revolting, right? (laughs) So that that's the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? It's wood smoke. And it's a, it's a very difficult thing to control. So uh, as I mentioned before, you, you're either going to burn it or not. What, uh, and so if you're focused on temperature control, uh, and especially most typical wood fire barbecue pits, you don't have a whole lot of knobs, right? The, the one knob you got is the damper. And it really doesn't matter whether it's an inlet damper or an outlet damper, uh, it's going to restrict the amount of oxygen uh, flowing to the fire, which can have an immediate impact on the power level of the fire. Um, but it also has an impact on the combustion of these two fuels, uh, and so if you restrict oxygen for for a charcoal fire, uh, it doesn't matter at all, right? The carbon just sits there hot, and it's waiting for some oxygen molecules to come by, and um, and if you don't give it an oxygen molecule, it just sits there hot and and waits for one to come by. So it's this wonderfully benign, inert fuel. Uh, the the smoke is a completely different animal, right? If and, and smoke and charcoal both are governed. The, the combustion of them is both governed by the so-called fire triangle, right? Which we all sort of learned in grade school or, or high school. Scouts. Or you yeah, scouts. Okay, so you got to have fuel and you got to have heat and you got to have oxygen. And if you don't have all those three things, you don't get combustion. And uh, so, as I mentioned, so in the case of charcoal, the, the charcoal or the carbon is the fuel. And uh, if you... If you have charcoal and oxygen, but no heat, then you have a lump of charcoal sitting on your desk and it'll be there tomorrow, right? Uh, And if you have uh, charcoal and heat, but no oxygen, same story. It'll be sitting there tomorrow, hot and waiting for oxygen to come by. And and that's what makes it so benign from a control standpoint. The smoke, it's coming out of the log. And first of all, the rate at which it's being produced by the log is, is a function of a whole lot of stuff like how hot's the log. How dry is the log? How big is the log, right? And you don't have direct control over any of that stuff. Uh, And then more importantly, it's coming out of that log and and you got a choice. You're either going to burn it or you're not. And Mm -hmm. if you burn it, you get more power, right? So if, if if I'm cooking in an offset and I'm trying to cook at 250 and I'm at 290 degrees and rising and I shut down on a damper, that will definitely make the temperature go down. Right, because you're restricting oxygen, you're going to have lower combustion of the carbon at the base of the fire, as well as of the smoke. Right, and so your flame is going to decrease, and that smoke will pass unburned into the cooking chamber. So, and the the degree of combustion of that wood smoke is the the major factor driving the entire flavor of the bark uh, in your barbecue, and uh, and so you know, long, long way around my story here is I started off like a lot of people sort of fixated on temperature control. And over the course of four years figured out that that was exactly wrong. The the temperature control is a less important and b pretty, pretty simple. The hard thing is combustion control. Um, yeah. and the temperature of, uh, how, how cleanly you combust that smoke is, um, uh, that drives everything It drives everything in the whole barbecue experience that gets you to go out and spend all this time on it in the first place. And the, the way I, the way I sort of analogize wood smoke is that it's a lot like crude oil. So crude oil, you, you stick that in a refinery in Baytown somewhere. And um, depending on what temperature you process it at and what catalyst you use and whether water is involved, et cetera, you can you can crack that crude oil into something as light as naphtha right or conversely something as as heavy as asphalt tar right so it it how you've cracked how you're cracking those long hydrocarbon chains matters enormously and in the case of barbecue that's what drives um the the flavor profile that comes out of barbecue so um If, if you under crack it, right. If you under combust it with too little air, colder temperatures, you're going to get what's commonly called creosote, right? This real heavy, tarry,
0: uh, turpentine ish
1: kind of flavor.
0: Yeah. Um, And that's, that's what. Uh, some people think it might be the paint on their smoker that's coming off on the inside right. where it kind of builds up on the inside of your um yeah. your lid or your dome and it's just looks like it's black paint flaking off but yeah, that's it's glossy
1: it'll be black yeah. and glossy in color and so it's it's just condensing on the inside of the pit because that's a cold surface and uh and so you volatilized or you vaporized these volatiles and but you didn't burn them and so they go into your cookbox, and if they hit something cold like the wall of your pit or a, a brisket they're going to condense right And and that this is a fuel right this is how people have chimney fires right they get enough creosote <laughs> condensing on the inside of their chimney and then if you get it hot enough it'll burn it's like well that's not the best thing to have on my brisket no uh, it's not so um, but you can you can also take this too far right so if you if you uh, burn smoke So thoroughly and so completely that you have uh, obliterated all these aromatics and and cracked them down to nothingness, um, then you don't get anything. You'll still get a smoke ring because you're still making NOx emissions, and that will react with myoglobin and give you a smoke ring. And so it will look like barbecue, but it just won't taste. It'll taste weak. And my experience with this is it's it's driven massively by moisture content of the fuel, and this is, uh, I had, I had an experience with a customer in, uh, he's in Brooklyn, bought a Caribbean Q and, uh, called me up and, and, uh, said, you know, I'm just not getting the, I'm just not getting the, the flavor that I expected to get out of this pit. And this is, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And so I we went through all, all sorts of troubleshooting and, you know, setting the valves and all this stuff. And long story short, it, it was because there's a tremendous uh, tree disease problem in the boroughs of New York City, and you can't bring wood in from outside that hasn't been kiln dried to kill all hmm. the bugs, and and so the moisture content of the wood that was available to him was less than ten percent, and uh, and when you have low moisture content wood, that leads to uh, very high combustion temperatures, which leads to excessive cracking of those aromatics, and that and. Pellets uh pellets have the same reputation for precisely the same reason,
0: right? Yeah, that's what I was gonna touch on because that's one of the biggest complaints people going from a traditional offset or wood burning pit to a pellet smoker right. is that they can tell it's a, a considerably less smoky flavor. So yeah. and and a the, the flame and the fire. You know, the little fire box there in a, in a pellet grill burns hotter right. than if you were smoldering it in a, in a smoker. Yeah. And, and also, like you said, the, the moisture content, because it's all sawdust and they're made into little pellets, right. is considerably less. So Yeah,
1: um, it's by, by specification, it's less than 10%, commonly less than 8%. So it, it burns. I mean, look, pe- pellet cookers are just a spinoff of pellet stoves. Right, and the whole push on pellet stoves was a cleaner way to burn wood as a fuel to heat your home. Right. right, so it was all about the whole the whole design emphasis of the of the pellet stove. The same mechanism you'll find in a pellet grill or pellet cooker is designed to to break stuff into nothing, right? So that you're not pumping all this visible smoke um, into uh, into the atmosphere. So it it and it's not a function of the, but it's just a function of the fuel, right? The the moisture content of the fuel matters enormously, has a big impact on the combustion temperatures, and the combustion temperatures has an enormous impact on flavor profile. So that's that's kind of the big aha. And uh, over over four years of uh, messing around with this, and uh, and so my objective changed. Uh, it was not about well, how do I have this. Super precise, uh, super precise temperature that can run for a long time without um, uh, operator attention. Uh, it was how do I how do I make great barbecue? How do I get the right flavor profile um, out of this uh, out of a wood fuel? Um, and that that really is uh, I found it to be a richer vein, right? Because that's the thing that um, is viewed as a black art, right? Where you know how how do these people do it? Well. They they, people that are cooking with an offset pit that are consistently making really high quality, great tasting barbecue, um, they they have pattern recognition from years and years and years of experience, so that they they can pick up a log and they know its moisture content by how much it weighs, and uh, they know whether they're going to use the wetter one now or the drier one now, and how they're going to bank the coals and how how to keep a good crown of flames uh, how to keep clean combustion and to maintain about the right level of power to, uh, to, to keep temperature approximately where it needs to be.
0: Yeah. It's not something you can learn from a book or uh, no. fig- figure out overnight. Like, uh, you know, if you ever talk to Aaron Franklin or see any of his interviews, he said, the you know he didn't start out cooking great brisket. It took him, you know, many years before he, and he still today says he's still learning and still adjusting and still, even though he produces consistently, you know, awesome barbecue, he still looks at it as, you know, there's things he might be able to tweak here and there, but it's a constant learning thing. And I want to kind of circle back a little bit uh, because one of the things that I just did a video on this where, I think a lot of people that are new to barbecue or new to outdoor cooking tend to not understand the difference between lump and and uh briquette charcoal. Right. You know, how, how, because even though lump charcoal can it's charcoal, most of it is charcoal, there's still a lot of it in there. There's pieces, especially when you get some of the stuff from South America where it's more right. dense wood that it's not hundred percent carbonized. So they right. get some off flavors from the charcoal. And I've had people say this a lot about someone like maybe the Kamado Joe, uh, big block that's mostly from that ax breaker, really dense wood in South America right. that it's like a chemical, you know, smell or whatever, when it burns. Well, it's because it's not fully carbonized, so that's another thing you got to look out for, especially when you think you're burning charcoal, which is really shouldn't have any kind of flavors or right you know, to it. But um, that's another thing. It's just, if it's not fully carbonized, you're going to get those smokes and, and flavors from it.
1: Yeah. So this is the paradox of the charcoal cooker, right? So uh, as you point out, uh, charcoal in theory, in in the highest quality charcoal, will be one hundred percent carbonized, right? Uh, that takes a lot of energy to carbonize wood into charcoal and so it's no surprise that frequently you see charcoal that has uh a non-carbonized bits so there's still volatiles in it okay so i just made the case that volatiles are important they're the source of all your flavor and uh in fact people who uh cook with charcoal uh will frequently add these chips or chunks and, and why do they do that well they do that because charcoal has no flavor right so if you want aromatics uh, to create a flavor profile, then you have to add something that hasn't been carbonized. Um, but the paradox is that the charcoal cooker is designed to operate oxygen starved, right? It's the whole basis for the, the airtight design of a charcoal cooker. Uh, and it doesn't really matter whether you have some, some uh, slide valve or ball valve or gate valve or globe valve or some automatic air uh, you know, blower—they're—they're they're all designed to uh, control temperature by limiting the amount of oxygen that the fire gets, right? So, which, as long as your fuel is pure carbon, works just great, um, but is flavorless, right? Uh, and now we introduce some volatiles into this, and we wonder why we get off flavors. And the reason why is the—the—the the, the wood, whether it's chunks or chips or. Uncarbonized uh, remnants in the charcoal uh, has a zero percent chance of burning as a clean flame because you're operating oxygen-starved. Right. So, so what you're getting is you're you're getting a charcoal fire plus some un, poorly combusted or uncombusted wood smoke, and that's why uh, it, it's uh, people are measuring out ounces of of uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. chunks and chips and stuff like that and. Um, So it's just, it's a paradox, right? If you, if you want, and there's sort of no way around it, at least none that I'm aware of, if you want great barbecue flavor that comes from properly combusted wood smoke. And there's really only one way to get that. And that's from a natural log fire. There may be some other scientific ways of getting it, like there's some uh, technologies used uh, industrially that are using superheated steam as a way to, to uh, generate volatiles from wood but within the sort of realm of the everyman uh the only way to get that is from a properly combusted fire comprised of natural air season wood logs
0: yeah and i see a lot of it especially in the uh in the barbecue world you'll see they'll come up with methods like with the Weber kettle, they'll have the snake method or the minion method where they're, where right. they're putting the, the smoking wood underneath the charcoal right. so that they can try to get that, you know, the volatiles to burn off when they, when the right. smoke rises through the fire. And that's kind of similar to the way the KBQ works, but, um, but yeah, there's so many different things that you, I've seen over the years and different methods and things, people trying to accomplish this. So, Hey, all, it's Darren. And I want to take a second to talk to you about the high powered torches From Grill Blazer, the Grill Gun and Sous Vide Gun. I was lucky enough to be a part of this project long before it was a Kickstarter, and I love them. If you're looking for something to sear your food within seconds, check out the Sous Vide Gun. If you're looking for a torch to light your grill and have it up and cooking within five minutes, your lump or briquettes, check out the Grill Gun. You can also light outdoor fire pits and your fireplace within minutes. Check it out guys at the link below and get 10% off your order. Check out the grill gun and the sous vide gun by grill blazer. I'm going to go ahead and pull up your um, website real quick. So people can understand what we're talking about here because they're hearing us talk about the KBQ. And, um, I want to kind of go into what, what, what your, uh, cooker actually does. It's so much different than anything else on the market. And, um, Just, this is your website here. Yeah. So hit hit that, how it works link. There we go. And let's hit the inverted flame first. So this is uh, the top of your pit and it looks totally different than anything anybody's ever seen. So let's walk us through this part. Yeah. So the,
1: the, this, this ended up, I mean, this is, this is at towards the end of the four years of uh, all the experimentation. Um, most barbecue pits, so if you think about an offset pit uh, and many other pits that share the basic sort of same physical flow, uh, the characteristic of the offset pit is that 100% of the power that's made in the fire goes into the cookbox. All right, so we have this tight linkage between temperature and combustion, um, which is fine as long as you maintain a perfectly shaped and perfectly sized fire, uh, but that's hard for a lot of people to do. Um, and the, this, this is, uh, sort of operates on a suction principle where the fire is free burning at all times. And you can see these vents on the side of the firebox uh, that provide, uh, plenty of combustion air at all times to the fire. Um, and I'm only pulling heat into the cook box as it requires it. And so there's an exhaust fan. You can see it off to the right-hand side there, what I call a control box, and that's what uh, pulls air out of the cookbox and blows it overboard, and because the cookbox is substantially airtight, it then uh, starts drawing heat from the firebox, and uh, so that had fundamentally sort of decouples the cleanliness of combustion, which is always maintained, uh, from the, the temperature control problem. So that 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 is a substantial innovation. That was uh, that's the basis of the first patent I got on this technology and uh, uh, everything else sort of keys off of that. So the idea of being able to turn the fire upside down, pull the smoke through the bed of coals at the base of the fire, which is always kept well oxygenated by those air vents. Um, and, and that it actually will produce clean smoke from 10% draw to 100% draw. So it, it really does decouple the temperature control problem from the combustion problem. And all the other stuff was kind of derivative from that.
0: Like, the so,
1: yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, so, and I think this is the thing that people probably are trying, like we had discussed earlier, instead of having a, like I'd say a barbecue guru or or what have you, um, you know, the fireboard that has a fan that kind of blows an air in or, or limits the airflow you just let this fire burn. It, it's, right. You're not you're not controlling the way the fire burns. So you're you're giving it right. all the oxygen it needs. You're not controlling the temperature of the fire. You're just right. controlling how much of that uh, temperature gets into the cook box with the smoke. Exactly, exactly. Uh, which which is totally different than any other cooker out there on the market. <laughs> right, right. And
1: so the the second innovation this the the smoke selector. Um, which you can see those two valves on the backside of that, uh, of that firebox. And actually there's another, yeah, exactly. So that, that, that innovation came from this customer in Brooklyn, right? Because in my attempt to solve it, this is even before I figured out the real issue was kiln dried wood. Um, when I attempted to, to solve it, I was like, okay, well, it's taken me forever to figure out how to make clean smoke. That's the hard part. So surely I can make dirty smoke and, and it's trivial, right? You just bypass the you bypass the bed of coals. So that upper valve or the so-called dirty smoke valve, uh, that just leads into the same tailpiece but doesn't go through the bed of coals. So that's a way of pulling smoke off the fire that's more like what the smoke in a traditional offset,
0: right? Yeah, it has got got been, more
1: volatiles in it, yeah. It's got more volatiles in it. So So now just by manipulating those two valves, You have uh, very good control over the combustion process. You can get clean smoke out of the bottom or you can get dirty smoke out of the top, or you can get some combination thereof. So again, it's taking this, this uh, traditional operator problem running an offset pit where you're, you have to, you have to solve a whole lot of problems simultaneously. And now they're broken down and you, you can sort of solve them separately. You can solve the temperature problem with a thermostat. You can solve the, flavor problem with two little valves in the back of the firebox
0: yeah but you don't have to worry about how big or how small your fire is because you're just gonna you're just gonna let it run you're gonna exactly whatever few which in an offset that's another big thing is you got to control the size of your fire and try to keep it where it is and that's one of the things watch watching a lot of different pitmasters and especially with aaron franklin if you watch his master class you know that's where all the work is, is keeping that fire at a certain size and certain temperature and certain right. burn rate and, and keeping, you know, being able to put that log in every, you know, 15 minutes or 10 minutes or however long it is, you know? Yeah. So, so it, what, it's
1: very much like, um, um, if you go back and rewatch the the barbecue at Franklin series or watch the masterclass, particularly the barbecue at Franklin series, uh, which is available on YouTube for free, um, most people miss the most important stuff in that video. And that's yeah. every time you hear the chop box go, or you see his little hatchet split a log in half and look at the size. So he's running a backyard scale offset pit. His his pieces of wood are this big, right? Yeah. And, and he's adding, he's not stuffing some 20 inch log, 20 inch long log. Into, right. uh, you know, his, his uh, 60 oh, yeah. capacity offset.
0: Everything uh, is controlled. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it's
1: controlling does. the power level by controlling the size of the fire, right. not by controlling air. There's always a surplus of air. Uh, and and that's the only way you can keep it burning clean.
0: Exactly. So let's go into the, so we talked about your smoke selector here. Yeah, and That's these holes on the back. So you right. can have it, you can have it where it's running full bore, through the through the coal bed so you're going to have your cleaner smoke here yeah you can have it do a little bit of both right you can have it like partially open on the bottom partially open on the top Yep. and then and then just open on the top and then closed on the bottom so yeah so those
1: little those are poppet valves i mean it's just a simple style of same kind of valve you see in an engine block or right. engine head i should say um and they're really they're really designed to be open or shut they're not really well-designed for throttling characteristics. That's getting a, a sort of false precision. I tend to use them more in the time domain than adjusting the the degree of openness, right? So so I, I will often, like if I'm doing ribs or something like that, I'll run for the first couple hours with both pockets open um, for a, a sort of middle of the road flavor profile, and then I'll shut the upper one and just keep it clean for the balance of the cook. But everyone's... Yeah everyone's flavor preference differs. And so that's a, um, uh, an easy way to have pretty positive control over the flavor profile you're going to get.
0: Now, what, what, uh, would the kind of wood? how much of a difference does that make? So if I'm burning Oak over pecan, yeah. is it more of a, just a little bit of a, you know, so in, in my experience or
1: yeah, in, in sort a couple of things to unpack out of that first is, um, um, at least in my experience, the degree of combustion has a far larger impact on the flavor profile than the species, um, and so that's that's something that people frequently uh, conflate, right? Uh, but if 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 it's uh, everything else held constant, um, I think the species is much less important than the degree of combustion. Um, having said that, some species are better than others, particularly with with uh, this technology. Um, I'm relying on the bed of coals that forms at the base of the fire to provide the heat and source of ignition for the smoke that's being pulled down through that base of coals. So uh, it's important to use a fuel that produces a durable bed of coals and some woods are much better at that than others. And uh, frequently it's a function of density. So oaks are good, hickory is good, mesquite is terrific. Um, Pecan is a much less dense wood it tends to not form a very durable coal bed uh, and some of the some of the other lighter woods uh are you know they have the same issue where they don't make a durable bed of coals so it can be difficult to maintain that bed of coals unlike with the oak or mesquite or hickory
0: cool so let's talk about the auto draft function here so let's uh it everything gets kind of pulled into the chamber like you said and you kind of you're controlling yeah. instead of controlling the heat of the fire or the oxygen flow to the fire, you're controlling how much of that heat gets into the chamber. So let's, let's talk about that convection again.
1: Yeah. So the auto drafters, it's a, it's a simple little box with components, all of which were invented before World War II, right? So it's, um, I'm the warranty department as well. So I try to keep it reliable (laughs) and simple. And it's, it's basically, take the lessons of Navy nuclear power and try to apply them to a barbecue pit. And that means first and foremost, you don't can eat up with a bunch of fancy electronics uh, if you don't have to. Um, So the, there are two, there are two fans in there. They're the same type of fan that's in your convection oven at home. So it's a shaded pole motor. It's very reliable, no capacitors or anything fancy like that, no electronics. Um, And, uh, and then a mechanical thermostat. And so this is just, Again, the same kind of thermostat you'll see in your kitchen oven, that same type of part. Uh, and that thermostat uh, is controlling one of those two fans. So that the two fans, one is for convection purposes and all that's doing is circulating air within the cookbox, just like the convection fan in your oven would, which helps improve uniformity of temperature within the cookbox. And it's also used to uh, uh, dilute the hot gas plume coming from the firebox.
0: Yeah. So and, uh, and people don't should understand that all pellet grills pretty much have a convection fan in them too. So
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. And the and the
1: second fan is a draft fan. And the draft fan, all it does is suck air out of the cookbox and blow it overboard. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, that creates a slight vacuum in the cookbox, which in turn draws hot gas from the firebox. And so if you sort of superimpose these two flows on top of each other, the draft flow and the convection flow, uh, you end up with a a merged flow in a a mixing tube in the back of the cook box that just helps to dilute or knock down the temperature of the hot gas from the firebox before it comes in contact with the food, uh, in the cook box. And so it's, it's that simple when, when the pit wants heat, uh, it sucks it from the firebox. And when that temperature requirements satisfied, then the draft fan shuts off, but the convection fan continues to run, uh, and, uh, and we just wait for everything to naturally cool down until the thermostat trips it back on again.
0: Yeah, and that confection fan makes sure the smoke is evenly distributed throughout the cook box, and right. it's hitting all your food. You know, no matter where what rack it's on, or you know how much you you know capacity you have in there. I think you said it's sixty right. pound capacity, about.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a it, it's about depending 60 on what you pounds. got in there. Yeah. Yeah. You could do four 15 pound briskets or, I mean, you can get to 60 pounds, 12, three, 12, uh, five pound chickens, or I don't know, maybe, uh, six pork butts, you know, seven and a half pound. You, you sort of get there a lot of different ways, but if you max it out, it can hold about 60 pounds.
0: And a whole, you know, bunch of ribs. I'm sure racks of ribs.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I mean, ribs are, it's an interesting point, right? Because, uh, um, You know ribs have a lot of surface area so there's when you put a bunch of cold ribs in a barbecue pit uh you have a whole lot of heat transfer going on because there there's so much surface area per volume and uh and this this pit that draft fan is just going to run until the temperature uh at the auto draft is meets the requirement um and and so you'll see uh, early in a cook a larger typically a larger dead band um and then that will decrease through the course of the cook because there's less heat transfer going on. But a typical dead man for this is uh, maybe 30 degrees. So if you're cooking at 250, it'll sort of swing between the mid 240s and the mid 260s, for example, um, which is fine. I get I get comments and there's no shortage of sort of technophilia in the barbecue space, <laughs> um, but it it doesn't matter. I mean, you're Chris young, when you had him on, uh, he was talking about using a thermometer, just, you know, a millimeter underneath the surface of a meat. And, uh, and if you did that here, yeah, the air temperature swing up and down by 30 degrees, but the surface temperature of the meat isn't moving half a degree over that 32nd right. uh, cycle. So it really doesn't matter. And so I, I do it this way just to make it simpler and more reliable.
0: Now does the, do you find that the food cooks faster in your cooker than it would in a conventional? Yeah, and that's a uh, that's a convection.
1: That's a convection. So it's just like your convection oven at home. You can expect to uh, knock twenty, maybe twenty-five percent off a typical cook time. All else equal, um, right. and and that that can be that can be helpful as well. I mean, some sometimes you want uh, you want higher air velocity. Like if you're if you're uh, cooking chicken. I mean, the most important thing in cooking chicken is to dehydrate the skin before you even put it in the pit, right? And, and let it sit in the fridge for a couple of days to, to let the skin dehydrate. But you you want to get aggressive dehydration of the skin to get it to sort of crisp up. And to that end, higher velocities can help. Um, yeah. In other definitely. cases, you might not want air velocities, and so you can you can sort of play with that. The the pit's designed to take a, a regular hotel pan or a GastroNorm is the international standard. Uh, and so I've had customers who they'll make a pan sandwich and put, you'll put a steam pan in low and then one above and their meat in the middle. And so all the air is sort of going around uh, the meat to slow down uh, that heat transfer. Uh, so you can really play with it with a bunch of off the shelf uh, items. And um, I've even had, uh, so I've had customers put water pans in the bottom and we could get in a whole long discussion about water pans, but you can put two in there and water in both of them. And the top one sort of intercepts the grease so that the bottom one can, can continue to evaporate more aggressively. Um, So you can mess around with all sorts of configurations because it's a industry standard uh, rack system.
0: Yeah. So we're going to, take a look here this is the actual pit here it shows you how much room is in it here and the configuration you got your fire box up on top and your fan here yeah. and so one of the things people would notice right off the bat is a the firebox is on top of the pit and and it's kind of small compared to if you look at a compared yeah. to an offset or you know a big pit barrel or something like that you know your your fire is relatively small and you can't really put you know, load it up like you could a big. No, so
1: um, it so it's actually about twice as big as it needs to be. Um, so it just doesn't take that much energy to run an oven that's that small. Um, and I get the question. So there are a lot of a lot of questions that come out, like why is it on top? And um, and the answer to that is there are actually a couple answers to that. One is uh, if you're barbecuing, you're going to be in that firebox all the time, like twice an hour and you're gonna be in the cook box like maybe once every four hours or eight hours. So it's more important to have the fire be convenient than to have the meat be convenient, unlike grilling when it's exactly the, the opposite. Right. Um, <laughs> the, the second reason is that uh, the, to, to make the, the temperature control work, it's important to not have a natural draft in the system. And so if the firebox is on the bottom, um, then that's gonna create a natural draft, just like in an offset pit, pulling air through the pit when the fan's turned off. And what you want for a simple control system is you want flow when the fan's on and you want no flow when the fan is off. And so having the firebox on top like that um, assures that there's no natural flow in the system whenever the fan is not calling for heat. Um, as to the size of the firebox, um, it, and I get the question all the time: Hey, can't you uh, can't you just make a bigger firebox uh, so I can load it up with wood and then I can get some sleep? And uh, <laughs> and so this is back to the same same issue of wood as a fuel. Right. The, the wood the wood in that big hopper doesn't know it's supposed to stay cold. All that wood is going to heat up at the same time, and in thirty minutes you're going to have all that gas coming out of that wood, and you are going to burn it or waste it and just have a pile of charcoal. And now you've got a very expensive charcoal cooker. Yeah.
0: Um, and, so- it, and it goes back to the difference in a offset than this, because yeah. in an offset you're restricting the airflow. So you're controlling how fast that f- fire burns where this you're just letting it go.
1: <laughs> well, in a, you know, in an offset, you have, you have a choice, right? It's depending on how you manage it. So if you watch, if you watch an expert manage an offset uh, I mean, look at Aaron Franklin's pit.
0: Yeah. He there lets his no fires damper.
1: Go. There's yeah. no damper on the stack, which, by the way, is the right answer. Uh, and there is no damper on the door, right? Because the door is designed to be open. So you shut the door when you're not cooking. Um, right. and, and the idea is it's a free-flowing system. And we're going to maintain temperature by maintaining the size of the fire And we're gonna keep the combustion clean by maintaining the shape of the fire. So it's compact and well oxygenated and you got a good crown of flames burning the smoke that that wood fire is creating. Um, But a lot of people get an offset and, and they build a fire that's too big and they control the temperature by restricting combustion air and that degrades the quality of smoke, period.
0: Right. Well, and I think a lot of people, if they're used to using, let's say, like I have the Kamado Joe or a Big Green Egg, a yeah. ceramic type grill, where your your fire's on the bottom, and right. but the only way you can control the temperature is by limiting the oxygen, right, or the air airflow. So you know, yeah. So that, that's, that's what that's my, used that's to. My. Like you could load it up with charcoal and 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 right. let it run for twelve hours and not even have to worry about it because you're limiting the right. airflow to it. And,
1: but that but that's the that that's the Achilles heel, if you will, of that uh architecture, which is it's oxygen starved. And so when you start introducing volatiles, you have you have no no way of uh controlling your combustion. It's it's gonna be incompletely combusted because you're oxygen starved.
0: All right, so let's uh, continue to look and see what, uh, what this pit has. This is one of the things I really like about your (laughs) website. You got this little um, disclaimer here, make sure this pit's right for you. So, (laughs) um,
1: yeah, life's too short to have an unhappy customer. Uh, and so I would rather, um, I'd rather have folks self-select out. Um, and there, there, there's no shame in saying, I don't want to I don't want to mess with a barbecue pit for you know whatever six eight, 12 hours uh, to make brisket. Okay, good because there's like a million other options out there for for making low touch barbecue. Uh, so get one of those. Don't get my pit and and be unhappy that you got to tend the fire twice an hour. <clears throat> right. If that's going to make you unhappy, buy something else.
0: Yeah. Cause there's no way around it. When you buy one of these, you're going to have to feed it wood. It's just like a beast. This is just, if you bought it, like a, if you bought an uh, offset smoker, it's exactly there's right. No it's, it's
1: it's kind of like an automatic transmission, right? right. <laughs> you, you still got to drive the car. I'll shift the gears for you, but you still got to drive the car. It's not an Uber.
0: Right. And so you do have to um, feed this thing because that's just the whole point of it is you're feeding it wood, yeah. real wood, and it's not smoldering. It's, Cooking full blast, and um, you, you just need to keep feeding it. So, right. how, how do you? Uh, how what is the manufacturing process like? Because there's a lot of this is all stainless steel. All the components are they all made in the house? Do you have like the, some, another company make the fans for you, and and you put it together as like a kit? or How, how is this all put together?
1: So, I have a local shop uh, here in Dallas that uh, laser cuts to my. Um, so I I do all the design and all the drawings and produce the cut files and they laser cut to my specification and then uh, I do all the forming and breaking of the stainless steel to in the in the assembly it's riveted assembly um, and I I wire up all the control boxes uh, at the
0: component level so and it's all so you actually a, it's all done so in a three car you- garage so you do it all yourself. You hand build these things. Um, yeah. You get all the parts, lay them out, and just hand build these things and ship them out.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a garage, and it's a <laughs> three car garage enterprise.
0: Now you've been doing this quite a while. Have you? I know you got patents on on the design and, and the and all that. So have you ever had anybody come to you or any of the bigger companies say, "Hey, I'd like to buy this design from you and produce these on a mass market type scale"? Or no, it's. I think it's.
1: Um, May there have been there have been some discussions? I think it's just a niche, right? And the, the question is, uh, how big is the niche? Um, it, it, you know, there are a whole lot of offset pits, and you know, being sold, and there's a highly fragmented uh, supply base of offset pits, and uh, so you could argue that there's a pretty big market. Um, but it's it's fragmented and who really knows, right? There's reasonably good numbers on uh, like grills and stuff like that from some of the industry trade associations, um, but it's it's a it's pretty unique. So I don't know if it's uh, mainstream enough. But you know, it's always you know at at some point twenty years ago pellets were not mainstream, and uh, and that's how Traeger sort of got it going, and now you you know, your pellet cookers all over the place. So
0: yeah, once uh, their patents ran out, I think uh, yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was a big boost for everybody else to get into the pellet market. So yeah, now absolutely. you got, now you got Weber making them. Let's talk a little bit about, I want to pull up the share my screen again, but we're going to go to a different website here. I want to go because I first found out about um, your cooker with, uh, on amazingribs.com ribs.com. Yeah. I'm a big fan of meathead and the, uh, and, and his website, because one yeah. of the things like we were talking about earlier on is that meatheads, one of the guys that looks at the science part of cooking and barbecue instead of just tradition or just, you know, uh, you know, seat of my pants, uh, mythology, things right. like that. So he likes to put science in it. And this is by far his favorite cooker. He's told me on several occasions. And then you have People like Chris Young, who uh, helped write uh, Modernist Cuisine and worked for Heston Blumenthal and, you know, yep. discovered uh, or started Chef Steps and, and all that. And then you know, Doug, Douglas Baldwin, who wrote the, the sous vide book on pasteurization tables. The guys that are big science buffs that are into cooking love your pit. So. <laughs> This is one of the things that really yeah. opened my eyes to it is that you got people like Mike Meathead said so this is his favorite cooker and it's because of the way it works. And even though you're putting these together, you know, by hand in your garage, how, let's go back to that. How many of these can you build in a week?
1: <laughs> well, they take about four and a half hours. Okay. A unit. And so it's, uh, You
0: probably got it down now, right? <laughs> I,
1: I, well, that's having it down. I mean, I, I, I it's small batch. They're not one at a time or 12 at a time. Um, and so batch, whatever you do, the math batch takes 50, 60 hours, something like that, which will gobble up nights and weekends, uh, and keep you out of bars. All
0: right. <laughs> so how many of these do you actually sell on a weekly or a monthly basis? Um, it, it's, uh, it's Secular. good.
1: It's <laughs> put my, put my kids through college. Um, yeah, well, that's good. It's good. And last year with the COVID, um, you know, it, it just, uh, it, it's crazy. I didn't expect it. I thought, oh, the sky is going to fall. And then everything took off like a rocket. So
0: um, yeah, I think everybody had, uh, I mean, I know a lot of the, you know, grills and and you know, people were having problems getting their, a lot of grills are manufactured in China. There were a lot of people, you know, a lot of companies that were hurting to get their grills, you know, yeah. over to, so they could sell them. Uh, yeah. even charcoal there was charcoal you know uh people couldn't get charcoal and stuff i mean it's crazy but yeah this is one of the highest rated uh smokers actually the highest rated smoker on amazingribs.com and like i said i've talked to both max good and yes. you know meathead and they both love it and some of the guys that really know and and cooking and science really like the concept they understand it it works just like you know you said it, it, gets those volatiles out and, um, yeah. you got a platinum rating on, uh, on amazing ribs, which is kind of hard to get from amazing ribs. Cause they don't, they don't uh, sell those. That's for sure. You got to earn your platinum no, rating. <laughs>
1: they're, they're very independent. Uh, and I have a lot of respect for that. They're, they're great guys and that they I mean, meathead does it right. He's just like, you know what? I'm going to provide real value here. And yeah. uh, not not be one of the long line of carnival barkers trying to, you know, get your eyeball on, get a click to get a commission on the Internet. He's he he doesn't roll that way. He just he, he does what he thinks is right. And and people uh, follow him because uh, because he's a good housekeeping seal of approval. Right. He's. Uh,
0: yeah. Well, he doesn't he doesn't just. Yeah try to blow smoke up people's butts he you know he'll point out things that are scientifically wrong it's like yeah. his biggest pet peeve is beer cat and chicken you know right right people people just to sit there oh i saw somebody do this and it looks cool well yeah the beer is not evaporating it's not doing anything it's just sitting in there keeping the inside of your chicken you know the lower temperature so you could pro- possibly get sick from it you know so do you normally have these in stock or if uh let's say i want to order one today i mean do you normally have a few that you can I, ship I try out?
1: To, I try to keep them there. It, there's always a run on them when the weather breaks in the spring. Uh, and there's always a run on them around Thanksgiving and around right. Christmas. Uh, but it, so the lead times may stretch out to a couple of weeks. But in general, I try to have a couple of them. I mean, it's a very small shop. So uh, there's not room for thousands. It's not like Raiders of Lost Ark with a <laughs> warehouse full of uh, uh. barbecue pits. There, there might be i don't know probably the most i've ever had on hand is eight so yeah um gives you an idea
0: well so you don't want you don't want these to you know have 100 150 a month sales on these right now <laughs> well that
1: i would that would it'd be a good problem but it would be a big problem so yeah um
0: uh, well yeah. i know some of the custom pit makers like lone star grills down there in texas they right. uh they actually, some of their stuff, it's like six to eight months out. I yeah. mean, if you want to order some of their things because they, they do, they make everything by hand and, yeah. um, they don't keep a whole big stock of them because they, they sell them out uh, pretty quick, but I definitely could understand, um, you, uh, keeping everything close and, and it uh, helps you with quality control. That's for sure. You don't have to Absolutely. worry about, have to worry about that. And, Well, I want to thank you, Bill, for being on. I think, uh, people can understand how your cooker works now. And, um, hopefully they'll take a look at KBQ.us and you can find out everything you need to know about the Q. and also check out the review on amazingribs.com. Also, you got a Facebook page as well, where people can go and ask you questions directly if they need to. And, uh, what else you got going on? And actually they can check out YouTube. There's plenty of videos. I know my friend, yeah. John Setzler has one. He's done a few videos of showing people what they can, uh, how they can set it up, how they can use it, uh, different cooks. He's even, I think he's done some cold smoking on it with cheese and stuff like that. So right. showing people how they can use this in the various different ways. So perfect smoker from what I can tell. I mean, the way it's designed, like I said, you got big wigs like meathead and Chris young and, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, all these people from modernist cuisine <laughs> love it. So, um, I want to thank, thank you again for being on. And if there's, uh, any, another time you want to be on, if you got any new developments, I'll hopefully have you on, but everybody make sure you go to KBQ.us and you can check out the Caribbean queue, check out the amazingribs.com uh review as well. And Bill, thanks again for being on.
1: Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: All right. Thanks again for tuning in to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I want to thank Bill Carew one more time for being on. Make sure you check out the uh, KarubaQ at kbq.us. Make sure you follow the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast and follow the Fire and Water Cooking channel on YouTube, Facebook, and I'll see you on the next Fire and Water Cooking Podcast.